You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. And it was about 1,500 words for Vogue that he wrote in 2007. And then I flipped and there was a Richard Avedon portrait of Donald Rumsfeld next to a Dutch old master. So on that basis, I cannot summarize Simon Sharma except to say it is beyond fantastic to have him here again, Simon. Yeah, it is one of those, um, hello, I must be going. We've been swell, it's hard to tell. Sad, sad, happy, sad, all good things are happy, sad, including 19th century definitions of community, which you may think, what did Julia just say? Thank you for that lovely introduction, by the way. Um, Julia said, well, you may not want to go after about, oh, about an hour and a half of me. You'll be desperate to get out of here, actually. Um, Well, what I want to say is, um, has it been good for you, really, basically? Has it been, have we made, with Julia's help, um, a community? Uh, Or has this been just a sort of sometime thing? Uh, Have we actually managed to create a comradeship of minds, a kind of invisible location, a mystical city, a meeting place which comes alive through artistic sympathy and creative purpose. And you're thinking there, that's pretentious enough to sound like Simon, but it isn't. It's actually uh, a beetle-browed German professor called Ferdinand Ternis, who wrote a really extraordinary book called Community and Civil Society, published in 1887. Yes, class, you're going to get a dollop of history as we're here today. Um, If you didn't expect that, if you expected recipes about ice cream, you're in trouble. Um, Tony's was, a, it's, a, it's a striking and remarkable book, and I've been sensing all through the weekend, I'm not sensing, many of you have reasonably said, um, it's, where's Peter Kellner, really? The word bollocks, yes, keeps on coming to, yeah, <laughs> to Peter's, uh, community, uh, bollocks for Peter, community, a kind of gorgeous piece of stardust, non-denominational Christianity from the bishop, um, Julia, I belong to the community of mankind, as distinct from what? You know, um, <laughs> Rabbi Julia. Um, so a lot of dissatisfaction. Oh, Pete, and we won't start with my, the other Peter over there, actually, um, whose who's brow's already firing um, at the thought of the word community being said another 14 times. Right, Peter? <laughs> so if you all think it's sort of empty bloviation or a sort of sinister second cousin of that fig leaf for the collapse of the public sector big society. It isn't. There is a literature to read, and I want to talk a little bit about it today, to say exactly what community is, and partly it's by defining itself against something else, and that something else isn't necessarily individualism, Um, but it is something else. And Tonis's book in German um, was called Gemeinschaft und Gesellschaft, and some, any of you who did social studies will know it and probably put it down only too quickly, and I want to try and make a case why you might want to read it in a wonderful translation, actually, a relatively modern translation, an edition by the Oxford political, um, philo- uh, the historian of political thought, Josie Harris. It's really a very user-friendly account of Tony's extraordinary book. So for Tony's, who wrote at a time, guess what, Um, when he was concerned about the alienation of things like family, friendship, neighbourhood, district, from the great banks, gee, what a surprise, in the the Imperial Reich, in the Second Reich, 
um, and from a sense of older forms of culture that existed in the German provinces. He came from Schleswig, which had been Danish and was merged into Bismarcky and Prussia with the usual subtlety of the hobnail boot and the dueling scar, those usual initiation rites of becoming modern and German. But Tunis was also, importantly for us, I think, on his guard against the community romance, by which I mean sentimental, tribal, all the things, actually, that, again, Peter very eloquently barked at, Peter Kellner, those things which say exclusive, that are tribal, fanciful, sentimental, dangerous. And my goodness, the 1880s was that fork in the roads when those things were about to become extremely serious. Who is and who is not a German? The invention for a start at the court of, of, of the first German emperors at the end of the 19th century of political anti-Semitism. Tonis nonetheless did feel, and for him the great question, and it is a great question for an incredibly strong tradition, which remains alive for us. It's exactly what's inhabited our discussions over the past few days, and what I hope, you know, what I'll take out with me as well. Tradition that, that came alive with the birth of social studies, which indeed has, as Nassim said, a lot to answer for, but also actually to which I think we must pay homage and credit, by which I mean the amazing community of minds, and it was they thought of themselves. They wouldn't have said community, they would have said a club, and they actually did populate clubs, the poker club and the oyster club, which I want to speak a little bit later on. I'm talking about um, David Hume, Lord Keynes, Adam Smith, Adam Ferguson, William Robertson, an absolutely astonishing group of minds collected in Edinburgh and Glasgow in the middle uh, and the third quarter of the 18th century. They did, they, the problem they had on their minds all the way back then was the problem we have on our minds, really. It is actually how to sustain the taproots of what makes us distinctively humane. And we've barely touched on this, actually. Harvey, bless him, really talked about, you know, came, buried his banner with a flag flying saying content. Um, Sarah talked about earlier on with blazing indignation about the need to talk about humanities. Karen talked about the fate of storytelling in the age of the tweet. The dreaded word education to lead out of something except as, you know, something with which the sour Lord Wreath might have been uncomfortable, has barely been mentioned at all, Julia. Next time, can we, can we have a bit more about that? In an age, after all, when the public sector is being decapitalized, in, we, we've, we've had this sort of... We, we, you know, haven't we been paying lip service to the fate of our children, whether we've been talking about it as neighbourhoods or families? Um, without actually talking about the consequences of actually not putting education, and not just education in technology, not just utilitarian education, at the heart of our concerns. So, where's Matthew Kirk? There you are. There you are. Fine. Matthew has asked me to announce that Vodafone tomorrow is actually setting up the Vodafone Foundation scholarship for all kids who don't, can't actually shell out 9,000 quid unless they want to do utilitarian subjects at school. <laughs> uh, he, he hasn't said that, actually. I just, uh, but now, now he's going to have to. <laughs> and... <laughs> but, <laughs> 
sorry, Matthew, but as, there's another Jew at the podium right now, you know, actually. So, so, <laughs> but actually, I saw someone dashing out to tweet about that, excitedly about it, you know. So I asked myself, what would turn east and what would our friends in Edinburgh made, actually, of two of the things which have been briefly touched on, actually quite, quite intensively touched on in the, in the wonderful panel this morning. Um, first of all, the digital, the digital world. I, I should actually say, I left it rather hanging there, didn't I, about what it was against Gemeinschaft, what was Gesellschaft, the dirty word, which, confusingly, it's the only bone I have to pick, actually, with Josie Harris's translation, not that I have a better one. She translates it as civil society, as distinct from community, um, which really is confusing, because I'm going to talk a little bit about Adam Ferguson. That's the second great reading recommendation um, those of you who have obviously been carrying around a copy and want to read it on the bus. The great essay published in 1767 called An Essay on the History, um, excuse me, Essay on the History of Civil Society by Ferguson. But civil society fraternity, anyway, is the bad guy. And what, it, what he means by that um, is actually a, a world, a society, a modern world, structured around the notion of the individual detached from society and mastering it. That if you had... Um, an aggregate of such purely self-interested individuals, which, by the way, Matthew, isn't really what actually Adam Smith is actually up to in either the wealth of nations or the theory of moral sentiments. But the Gesellschaft view is if you do that, then somehow magically, invisible hand or whatever, a general good will be served. That for Tunis was precisely not the way to go because it was a masquerade for ultimately the the corporate or private appropriations of things which should belong to the commonwealth, the commonwealth, like um, a civic museum, like um, a university, like schooling, and, and like assistance to the poor. And, and uh, all the things, remember, social policy also came out of that weird place that was Bismarckian Prussia. Um, above all, really, as I said, that question that Tony put, how do we really sustain and nourish our sense of shared humanity in a world that's not sentimentally romantic, but actually embraces modernity? That was also the question that Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson asked. So what would Tony have made of the tweet world, of the tweet world, of the world we were talking about earlier on, our digital world, which is really at the heart of our many shared concerns, whether we're in business or in the media or in, in politics? And I think one thing would have really appalled, horrified Tonis, and that was the issue of time. Maybe time and space, but especially time. For Tonis, for better or worse, um, a community was essentially nourished. It was sort of, it's slow cooking. It was sort of profoundly marinated in familiarity, in custom, in intimacy, in memory, in non-homogenized distinctiveness of place. Seems weird to be talking about it actually in Port Merriam, which we all adore, but which is the kind of most insane Salma Gundy of places on speed. You know, sometimes Port Merriam, which I love. Don't you remember all those, those um, tourist posters where, which sort of BOAC, when they were alive, wanted to take you everywhere that mattered? So it was a big poster which had the Leading Tower of Pisa and Big Ben and the Chrysler Building and... Sort of Port Merion is the kind of munchkin version of that in a way, but it's sort of <laughs> lovely in its way too. So Tony's sort of worried about tweeting. And here's the thing, he would say that all his, you know, all the things that make for a community rather than an instrumentalist society, if you think about it, friendship, the neighborhood, um, 
in particular, actually, are the products of, and actually family relations. Um, he would have, he had, it's very odd, a lot of these people who think about community have large families, and they do go on for a little bit of sentimental romanticism about the, the table, about sharing food. The image, actually, of the tweeting, um, tweeting family, actually, that watched TV for four hours and had no time, actually, to sit down together for food, would have actually disturbed in a kind of non, I think, sentimental romantic way. And actually, those of us who are, as it were, in outliers of the food industry, I never want to hear about, you know, trying to deal with this issue, actually, that, um, well, it's all very nice watching Jamie and Igella and all the rest of it, and, you know, and buying the books and reading what um, Gordon Ramsay and, and, and Rayleigh Lee, my colleague, have to say, but it's all very lovely, but we don't have time. Well, actually, if you are watching four point you know, something hours of television and how many hours on the computer as well. Of course you have time actually to cook. Every, we all actually have time to have that shared meal together. Anyway, Tony's would be upset about this, the world that prizes the sovereignty of abbreviation. He would hate abbreviation. As you'll all be aware, so do I. Uh, <laughs> um, he... <laughs> <laughs> You're the victims of it. Um, he, he would not like supersaturation. Again, something that's been very illuminatingly discussed in, in many of our talks. He would not, uh, starting with Nassim, the sort of indiscriminate meteor shower of data. He didn't like that. He hated a world embodied in his version of the bad guys of Gesellschaft, in which he said very beautifully, money is confused with wealth. Um, so he didn't really like a world of which valued simultaneity, instantaneity, abbreviation, and indiscriminate data, putting words in his mouth, confusing data with understanding or with knowledge. So he would have been worried, I think, but he would have also put the question, what kind of community... First of all, he, he might have said, is a social network an oxymoron, actually, um, in the way in which we all know about it? Um, he would also have said, but he, I don't think he would have been, at least I hope he wouldn't have been, because it is a really wonderful book. Um, he, and he's not a Luddite. He's not a Luddite at all, Sandra. He would have said, we need to ask ourselves what kind of network this is, and whether or not, he, neither he or nor Adam Smith, nor or Scots, who really prized friendship in their clubs and other places too, would have been upset about the notion with the click of a mouse, you friend someone. They've been worried about using friend as a verb rather than to befriend or make friends. When you make friends, it presupposes time, proximity, intimacy, familiarity, custom, just as it does between parents and children. That's what we've all had, thank you. Where the hell's Julia gone? I was just a, you know, blow a kiss at her. That's actually what Julia does provide for us, you know, our sense, illusory, temporary, whatever it is, there you are, you know, of actually having that kind of friend-making familiarity. Um, and Tannis would have said, well, actually, the network of friends is ersatz friendship, because of the illusion of making that connection of friendship, we, the danger is of not prizing the real thing. Then he would have opened the papers, and he would have looked at, actually, the events that we've, again, only talked about very briefly. Um, the events, the incredibly exhilarating, inspiring events taking unfolding in North Africa and particularly in Tunisia, in Egypt, and even, you know, we hope with a, with a happy outcome in Libya. But particularly at Tahrir Square, a lot of attention has been paid, quite rightly, to the mobilisation of the young, 
um, the importance of the Google executive, Raul Khanem. And the, but the, the Khanem interview, lots of you saw it, I'm sure, with the Egyptian reporter, do you remember her name, Nassim? No, but it was, that was the point, really, which provided a story, a narrative. What he did on that television interview... No, it wasn't, wasn't, Middle, it wasn't, wasn't Orientalist tokenism. It was, I thought, since you know about everything I've been mean, following you, I thought you actually would remember the name of the reporter. Step ahead of you. The only time in my life, probably, actually. God, he's... Think about Nassim, we love him. He's so fucking fragile, you know, some of the times. You know. <laughs> Oh, yes, well, mistaken assumption, clearly, you know, yeah. Um, but that did provide the narrative. But what I wanted to say in respect of our, our Beetlebrow Germans list of priorities about sustaining a community was that, remarkable to me, you know, the 19th century historian, because it happened, it was born with the French Revolution for better or worse, and it was sustained by the 19th century revolutions, was the creation of a genuine, they would have certainly said, a community of some sort in Tahrir Square, bizarrely, you know, symbolised at the end by something, you know, by cleaning up the square, sort of cleaning up the litter and the trash and so on. But the sense in which those people who put their lives on the line, who were risking, you know, the moment of the dreaded kind of attack camels, which was not funny, um, but real serious trouble happening in Tahrir Square, it was an assembly, as we all saw day after day, the young, the old, the veiled, the unveiled, there were women there. Um, it wasn't just kids. Um, there were people absolutely from the street, from the souk, from, you know, pretty much everywhere in, in, in Kyrene life. And that, she said, my goodness, that is a revolutionary community that exists on the impermanent energy on the moment. It had that incredible drive of formless euphoria, which is at the same time instantly empowering. It is immensely empowering. You create your own courage through a kind of you know, fraternité, that most neglected of the French revolutionary trinity of mottos. But it's through that kind of fraternal solidarity that you become collectively brave. Um, but the disadvantage, of course, about formless euphoria is that actually when it's let out, you don't quite know what to do with it or how to capitalise on it or how to turn it once you've achieved the emblematic object of the attack, the, the removal of Mubarak himself into something more sustained and, and systematic. So if Tony said that was a community, he would have said it's a community, I think, actually, but a community of the immediate moment. Um, that needed then to sort of develop as the months went on its own memory, its own habits, whether they tweet habits or people going to see each other and talk about what those 18 days were like and so on. And as I said, the, this sort of thought really about how do we sustain, because in a way, Tahrir Square is also what we've been talking about, what um, Louise was talking about movingly yesterday when she was talking about the importance really of what becomes of neighbourhood. Um, it, it's sort of flying in the face of the inevitability of, of globalisation. The one good incidental thing that came from the terrifying traumatic shakedown of the, of the events, economic events and macroeconomic events in 2008 is it does, again, give us a kind of breathing pause, a moment for reflection, or it should in this sort of circumstances, in this sort of forum, it does. And that issue, actually, again, about what it's good 
not to say as redundant, so over, so past, so romantic in the 19th century sense, but we can actually plant inside the institutions of modernity is what Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson were all up to. And they started, um, what, they, what they did, which is so impressive in the Scottish literature, and the book, you, again, class, that you all have to read, is The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Also, amazing read. Um, published by the young Adam Smith in 1759, went through more editions than The Wealth of Nations, went through six French editions and four German editions, was the very last thing and perpetually the book he came back to. It was the last thing he did before he died in 1790 was to do yet another edition. It kept on sort of adding and subtracting of the theory of moral sentiments, lest he be misunderstood as an individualist. Tunney's also said... The reason why Tönnies wrote Gemeinschaft und Gesellschaft is because he was sick of the subject for modernity being the choice between individualism and collectivism. He said, no, the choice is, between, is always about individualism. It's only about whether we most richly realise our individualism as part of a larger whole or whether we necessarily define the satisfaction of our individualism over and against outside the rest of society. Society then becomes an instrument for creating magnificence, for creating a kind of heroic sense of the creative ego. And from that, does that become the general good? So Adam Smith was under no, you know, he, he was under really, both of them, both Smith and Ferguson quoted Montesquieu um, merrily. Uh, when Montesquieu said, man is born into society and there he stays. And that was a sort of byword for them. And the opening, um, Adam Smith again, by the way, actually, just, um, Matthew, the word capitalism never occurs in anything Adam Smith ever wrote. I mean, there's not a huge meaning attached to that, but it is very interesting, however, that when he's invoked as the patron saint to something for which he didn't actually have a term in either the wealth of nations and the theory of moral sentiments, you know something more, in a way, more interesting is up. Here's actually how some of you, I'm sure, will know this, but... Forgive me if you do to remind you how, for me, the authentic Adam Smith begins the theory of moral sentiments. How selfish soever man may be supposed. There are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derive nothing from it other than the pleasure of seeing it. Of this kind of pity or compassion, the emotion we feel for the misery of others when we either see it or are made to conceive of it in a very lively manner is striking. That we often derive sorrow from the sorrow of others is a matter of fact too... Oh, this is hard Scott saying this. Is a matter of fact too obvious to require any instances to prove it. For this sentiment, the, our sorrow at the sorrow of others... We all felt that when we were watching... I want to do a shout-out, lest nobody does. Where's Biban? Oh, there you are. Don't be shy. That was just the transforming thing you did for us, really. For me, anyway. Though they perhaps, um, like all the other passions, is lost. And the, the sense of actually discovering sorrow in the sorrow of others is by no means, says Adam Smith, confined to the virtuous and humane, though they perhaps may feel it with the most exquisite sensibility. The greatest ruffian, the most hardened violator of the laws of society, that's me, is not entirely without it. 
And I would say that, of course, Adam Smith is not dewy-eyed, really, about, again, you know, our sense of compassion. He sees as an amazing essay in social psychology, essentially both that, that proceeds over, saying that, you know, interest, of course, intervenes, but it, it is simply a mistake about the history of human society to suppose that even the most brutal epics of the dominance of power have essentially been driven entirely by the definition of our own interests against other people. Political economy, as was said earlier on, was a phrase that was actually coined, actually in Naples by Antonio Genovese, but most, more eloquently in, uh, with our Scotsman. And uh, it, with Adam Smith, it was meant to do two things. He was very straightforward about it. It was supposed to provide um, material revenue, which he meant our daily bread, basically, the, the, the necessities of our life. And then he also said it's also meant to provide, gee, what a surprise, you know, those of us who've, you know... Um, of a different view of Adam Smith, a caricatural view, needs for the revenue of the state. Yes, the state. And what did Adam Smith want the state to do? Well, for a start, you know, um, hello, um, my, you know, uh, the present government, free public education, great and important Scottish institution, provide assistance for the disabled and infirm poor. All those sort of Tom Paine things were common to Adam Smith as well. That's what political economy was supposed to nourish and sustain. But the question that was asked by Smith and Ferguson from what simply makes us happy? What makes us happy? Are we happiest actually exulting, and as Adam Smith says, vaunting in the triumph of our own self? Or are we, you know, do we have a different kind of happiness? Here's, here's Adam Ferguson to give you a... And they were, they were members of the poker club, the poker club, not, not card game. Alas, Charlie, where we are. But the poker club, because poker as in stirring things up over the Militia Act, which I, you know, even I will not inflict the details of that on you. But here's actually, give you a taste of Adam Ferguson and actually the kind of thing that, that they thought about when they thought about happiness in a modernising economic world. The track of a Laplander, and this is rather romantic with a capital R again, on the snowy shore, but he's, he's attacking the notion that you're ever really happy when you're in solitude. The track of a Laplander on the snowy shore gives joy to the lonely mariner, and the mute signs of cordiality and kindness which are made to him awaken the memory of pleasures he felt in society. It was for Ferguson, the mutual, he describes it as mutual discoveries of generosity, the joint trials of fortitude that redouble the ardours of friendship and kindle a flame in the human breast, which considerations of a personal interest and, and safety cannot suppress. So he wants to say, we are wired in a sense for what Adam Smith called mutual sympathy, for mutuality, to do things together as, as, as we have been doing. And the most, if you extrapolate, says Ferguson, who starts, what makes us happy? How are we most rewarded? How is our individualism most richly fulfilled? Building that into institutions, which are natural and instinctual, um, the family in particular, the relationship um, of you know, parents to children, which I always think of begins with what I call involuntary unselfishness, you know, builds into something else. Here is him describing the most happy state. The most happy state for Ferguson is the one which is most beloved by its subjects, sort of tautology, but they are most happy whose hearts are engaged, Julia, to a community in which they find every <coughs> object of generosity and zeal 
and the scope, because art and religion, but especially art, content, we'll say, matters, matters. Community is the, it's not, it's, it's the necessary condition of the, of the generation of content. You might say that. Community, maybe that's too obvious to say. Maybe it's a truism. It's not a sufficient, sufficient condition for the production of interesting content, but it's a necessary condition for it. <coughs> um, a community in which they find it. Every object of generosity and zeal and scope for the exercise of every talent and of every virtuous disposition. And then I really, I really won't go on very much longer at all, but Ferguson goes on to talk about, I mean, he does have a fantastic riff, really, on how you, know, you can confuse money with riches. But above all, it's the sort of two human types who Tunney's then really develops as well. Um, and uh, Tunney's has this, uh, the sense in which actually your happiness is derived essentially from the degree to which you master the society in which you happen to find yourself. So society becomes instrumental for your own personal appropriation. Tunis calls it the extraction of pleasure. And Tunis calls it happiness hunting. It's a fantastic phrase, I think. He, he describes essentially, think about you know, Citizen Kane or something like that, that happiness hunters have, in their view, a particular end, a particular mergers and acquisition deal, a particular degree of success. How much money do you need? Fortune, top 500, whatever it is. And it goes on and on and on. He says this essentially attached to that, hello, Rupert Murdoch, is the ultimate attempt to control the opinions other have of you that ceases only with your death, when you're fucked, because you can't control the obituaries, really, whether you like it or not. <laughs> he doesn't actually say that. But that notion, really, of the lonely, stalking, Miss Money Penny here, grouse shooting, no, not grouse shooting, happiness hunter, the relationship between you and your happiness being one of the shooter and its quarry is deeply, deeply, profoundly kind of abhorrent to those who do see community not just a kind of vacuous form of bloviation, but do actually follow Adam Smith's, you know, very elementary human psychology about that which actually, um, that which actually genuinely enriches ourselves in, in relation um, to each other. Um, and attached to that, and I, I'm finishing, it's uh, uh, Tony, oddly, oddly enough, was a student of Thomas Hobbes. And it, you'd think no more different political psychologies, philosophical psychologies, you know, it could be less alike. Than, but he saw in Hobbes, even in Hobbes's beady-eyed, flinty, kind of knuckle-cracking cynicism about some of what human behavior was like, and a real a sort of heroic truthfulness about what humans did. And... Um, and it was Hobbes in The Leviathan who talked, actually, about those um, who undertook a perpetual and restless desire of power um, that ceaseth only in death. And then, he, then actually, Tonis, uh, in common, both Tonis and Adam Ferguson take the same quote from uh, Thomas Hobbes' De Kiwe, and says, when they, again, in a sense of kind of fascinated um, horror, um, Hobbes's view that all, uh, of people who uh, essentially are preoccupied by all the pleasures and jollity of the mind consist in this urgent desire to get some satisfaction and comparing it with others may then find somewhat a means to triumph and vaunt themselves, actually. And this sense, actually, of the solitary, vaunting, chilly triumph, actually. Hasn't that been 
you know, what we've, we've been trying to find a way around in our discussions, many of which, as I said, have touched on these uh, sempiternal themes of family, of district, of neighborhood, um, of reflection, of considered reflection. You've given us the luxury of being able to do that, of actually to defy the tyranny of instantaneity, actually, um, with what we've been doing. And as I said, they belong to, uh, they have this kind of rival clubs, but they had overlapping membership. Um, you know, Hume and Lord Keynes and Smith and, uh, and Hugh Blair and, and Ferguson and so on. And um, uh, the, the, poker, um, the poker club was the one which Ferguson organised it, really. They most all love. And they met, every, they met every month, I think. I must find my uh, quote here. Um, and um, it, it, it struck me that in their clubbishness, clubbishness wasn't something, Peter, which was, it was actually quite open anyway. Um, it, it, it wasn't the kind of exclusive community. Lots of people sort of came along to it, but there was indeed a kind of core membership that was made up of custom, familiarity, thoughtfulness, reflection. It was a wonderful thing. And, of course, such clubs, we know this is a glory of British politics, actually, something we, we ended up by not complacently congratulating ourselves, but, you know, saying things could be worse in British politics, thus it always was. Clubs went out and they became editors of newspapers, they were polemicists, they stood for Parliament. They weren't just, you know, sort of armchair and portswilling organisations. They wanted to take the principle of familial friendship out there into the public sphere, which, my darling, is pretty much actually what you're up to. And here... I want to finish with um, David Hume, you know, who was, uh, whose philosophy uh, has a little asperity to it, but it has a kind of the asperity of the utterly honest man. And any of you who know Adam Smith's account of David Hume's last days and months, uh, it, one of the most deeply things ever written. Um, but here's David Hume, who wants to be, like us, a full-time intellectual. But he was of a sceptical and, as he said, depressive mind. And he would really go into the company of the poker club um, in order not just to cheer himself up, but to be able to have a, 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 an intuitive marriage of conviviality and hard thought, hard talk and hard thought. When such a black mood came upon me, says David Hume, most fortunately it happens that since reason is incapable of dispersing these clouds, nature suffices to that purpose. I go to my friends in the poker club, I dine, I play a game of backgammon, I converse, I am as merry in my friend, I'm merry with my friends, and when after three or four hours of amusement, I return to those concerns, I get back to community and values, you know, things you've got to really talk about, they appear so cold and strained and ridiculous, I cannot find it in my heart to enter them in any further. Which means that even when you actually have had a club of like-minded thoughts, a community of the creative minds, which is what you've given us, even for David Hume, there was time to say goodbye and have fun and pleasure and satisfaction in the memory of it. I want you all crying on the bus now, actually. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Thank you.